We've been going through a, a series on hell, and I want to take a bit back as, as we continue on on these studies. It's always helpful and useful to remind ourselves why we're going through this, why we're doing this. And really, part of the reason why is, is illustrated by something, maybe it happened to you, but I don't know if you ever had a grade school crush. Uh, it, where you you see somebody and and you, you you start having feelings for them, you know you're really young, and if you were like me, what you did once you had that grade school crush is uh, you did everything you could to avoid that person or contact with them, and, and then you would uh, the, the that wouldn't necessarily diminish the crush. In fact, it might start growing, but but the crush was based not on your actual interaction with that person but on your imagined interaction with that person so you start to think of this person as a in a certain particular way and build up certain attributes that you're kind of observing from afar and at at the distance and eventually you start forming a crush not on the actual person but on an imagined version of that person that exists only in your mind and, uh, you know, I think I had these grade through school crushes, uh, well with, into my late twenties, uh, but that's another story. So, the, the reason I bring that up is because we, we don't want to have that grade school crush view of God. Where the God that we are worshiping, the God that we are seeking, the God that we are looking at isn't the God that actually is, but some imagined God that exists only within our own heads. And if as you come to Scripture and if as you come to God, uh, you either ignore or never see anything that changes your view of God, you are in danger of serving the God of your own imagination, not the God who actually exists. And when we study doctrines and issues that are hard or uncomfortable for us, one of the things it does is it forces us to face God as who he is not as we are imagining him. Uh, today, in our format, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, it's in, in terms of the pacing and structure of this message, it, it's going to be a little unorthodox, but I hope you'll trail with me. We're going to be uh, following a particular idea that is related to the doctrine of hell throughout the Bible. And so we're going to be having several passages that we'll be looking at as we go through the message and discuss it. The uh, passages we're looking at center around a, a particular idea, and it's the idea of a cup. And, and when you see a cup, uh, a lot of times it'll give you some indication. If you see a, a, a cup like this, which is a, a mug that's thick with a handle on the side, you might think, oh, that's that's... What might be in that? Think coffee, tea, if you're me, hot chocolate. If you see another cup and it's got a a, a large base, a skinny neck, and then a, a bowl at the top, you may think, oh, that's a wine glass. Something's thick. If something's you know slender and, and tall, you might think it's an iced tea glass. And then. We think, of course, not only of the cup, but what is its content? What is within it? And there's a, a particular cup and a particular drink that is mentioned throughout Scripture 
that is the cup of God's wrath. And, and this idea is, is a, a theological idea that is tied in closely to our idea of hell. If we don't understand the nature and the purpose of God's wrath, we'll never really come to that full of an understanding of hell. So today what we're going to do is we're going to trace the, this um, idea of the cup of God's wrath and really we're just going to cherry pick. There, there's so much on this topic that uh, you know, we, we could spend weeks in it, and I'm, I'm trying to keep this series just to the summer so that we don't have uh, too long on the doctrine of hell. Um, so we're, we're really just going to touch down in a couple key places and look at this idea of the cup of God's wrath. Uh, the first place we're going to be looking, and you can turn there with me now, is Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. This comes in a, a section uh, dealing with the judgment uh, that is poured out on Israel. And in this, we're, we're going to see a bit about the nature of God's wrath and, and what its effects are. Isaiah chapter 51, we're going to beginning in verse 17 and reading through verse 23, the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 51, beginning in verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street. Like an antelope in a net, they are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, you who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put in, into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Let us pray together. Lord, we pray that you would bless our reading of your word. We pray, Lord, that as we come in faith to your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might come to know you. Not as we imagine, not as the culture presents you, but as you have revealed yourself through your word to your people. Lord, may we not be content with information about you, but may we seek to know you intimately, personally, deeply, and be known by you. We pray that this would happen today as we worship together. We ask it in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
uh, we have really a, a stark picture here. And it's a, a, a picture of the effects of what have happened to Israel after she has drank from the cup of God's wrath. It's really a description of the, the vintage or the nature of God's wrath. We, we see in this that they've drunk to the dregs. It's also called the bowl, the cup of staggering. Later on, it, it refers to de- devastation, destruction, famine, and sword. It says, who will comfort you? It says, Israel's sons are lined up or stacked up at the end of the street so the mothers have no one to comfort or console them. They say they are full of the wrath of the Lord. It says, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. So it's interesting that the cup of God's wrath is often mentioned kind of in, in reference to wine. And, and wine has several particular effects on people. Some of you may have experienced it personally. Some of you will, will just have to take the scripture's authority on this, but it's called the cup of staggering. What happens when you've drank too much wine? You have a, a, a little bit of a balance issue. You have trouble stabilizing yourself. It's interesting. We've said throughout this series on hell that one of the realities of hell is that it makes you less and less of who you are. That is that that heaven is a place where you experience wholeness, where you're made whole, where you are integrated as a person. And hell is a place where you are continually being unmade where you're being disintegrated. And there's there's a unique element that this picture of wine as the, the, the cup of God's wrath has with it. One is that as you drink wine, you have less and less control of yourself. You're, you're not able to control yourself. You are victim to the effects of wine and controlled by it. And there's another thing that's also kind of interesting about it is that at the same time, paradoxically, when you drink wine, you become less and less yourself because you're less and less controlled. But on the other hand, sometimes you see who somebody truly is after a few drinks, don't you? They become more and more who they are. The mask that they put up in in, in society start to come through. And we've said this about both heaven and hell, is that in those places you will be coming eternally what you are pursuing here on earth. If you're pursuing the presence of God and worshiping and honoring him alone, that is a destination you will be eternally drawing near to in heaven. If, on the other hand, you disregard God's word, you are rebelling against him, you do not believe in the promises he has given. Yet harden your heart against him, setting yourself up as the center of worship. You are going to be eternally moving towards that destiny for all eternity in hell. And you'll discover the torment of having only yourself excluded from the presence and the grace of God. There's a cup of staggering 
It's a place of continued undoing and disintegration. Now, as we continue, it would be helpful to take a minute and make sure that we appropriately define wrath. God's wrath is his vehement, just, holy, and terrible opposition to sin and evil. God's wrath is his vehement, just, holy, and terrible opposition to evil. And we'll get into that a little more. From this first passage we looked at, I want to I draw out a conclusion as we look at Isaiah 51. Our, our point, and this is really an exegetical point, is that the cup of God's wrath is an expression for temporal judgment. That's what we have here. We have the wrath of God. It's first poured out on Jerusalem. And we hear about all the effects of it. And then what is the hope at the end of the passage? God's going to say, I'm going to take it away and I'm going to give it to all the people who are oppressing you. So here the cup of God's wrath is an expression for God's wrath against sin, first for his people and then for those who oppress them. But it's in reference and expression for temporal judgment against sin. Now, as, as we trace the idea of the wrath of God, this Old Testament ex- expression has a greater emphasis that's later given to it. The cup of God's wrath poured out temporally later becomes an image for what is coming when God finally and fully pulls out his, pours out his wrath against all people. Our second point is going to be that the cup of God's wrath is also an expression for eternal judgment against sin. Uh, if you would, look with me now to Revelation 14.10. Revelation 14.10, this is referring to those who uh, worship the beast in his image, receive his mark. And then it talks about God's wrath poured out upon him. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 14. Beginning in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So whereas in in Isaiah the reference was to a people group who in time received the wrath of God poured out, here in Revelation we have the cup of God's wrath, She describes the wine of God's wrath in the cup of his anger as an expression for his eternal judgment against sin. Both are drinking judgment. Also, both are undoing. Do you notice that? Here it talks about them. What's their state? They're tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of light, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They are burning eternally. They're becoming less and less themselves forever. 
And both are from God. We said that the wrath of God is His appropriate, vehement, just, holy, and terrible opposition to all sin and evil. Now, as we look at at these two passages, we need to draw some conclusions out of them, some theological conclusions. After we see that the cup of God's wrath is an expression for temporal judgment against sin, and after we see that the cup of God's wrath is also an expression for eternal judgment against sin. By the way, we have this pattern in Scripture, don't we? That there are instances that occur in the Old Testament that serve as a model and a promise for what will come in the New Testament. Or that there are earthly things that are given that help us to understand eternal and heavenly things. Here, the the wrath of the God as it's poured out in the nations in the Old Testament is something that gives us an awareness of how God appropriately responds to sin and what He will do when He finally and fully deals with sin. As I said, there's some theological points we need to draw out of this. First of all, God's wrath is a necessary virtue for a holy and loving God. God's Wrath is a necessary virtue for a holy and loving God. Now, God would not be a just judge. God would not be a loving father. God would not be a good king. God would not be a holy God without wrath against sin. Now, saints, we're living in an age when there is an extremely high tolerance towards evil. And whether we like it or not, we're largely affected by this. Uh, I want to make sure I get his name right. Dr. Larry Nasser, is that the right name for him? Yeah, okay. I've, I've got a couple nods. Recently, there was an incredibly wicked man. He was the doctor to the Olympic gymnasts. And if, if you'll remember the, the incident, he was accused of great perversity against very young girls who are part of the Olympic gymnastics program, and he continually and systematically abused them for years and years and years. As he was finally being brought to justice on and, and being put on trial, one of the things that occurred through the trial is that those whom he had abused had an opportunity to stand and share what they had experienced. Now, by the way, this is an aside, but you should really check out, there's one lady who shared both God's justice and the gospel in her testimony. But as, as that was brought up, that they were just going to share what he had done to them and the effect it had to them, do you know what the defense counsel argued? They argued that he should not have to be there when they do that because just him hearing what he had done would be considered cruel and unusual punishment. Now, since if you have any, and fortunately that was overruled, but if you have any doubt in your mind that we live in a culture and a society that has a high tolerance for sin and evil and that which is morally depraved, that's all the proof you need. Wrath is an expression of God's love for justice, His love for holiness, 
His love for purity. His love for righteousness in action. If God was not a loving God, if He did not love these virtues, there would be no necessity for God's wrath. When people want to diminish or eliminate the wrath of God, they're really asking for an unloving, uncaring God. His love necessitates His opposition to those who oppose these virtues. Uh, One of the things we had in our service today uh, was was that description of murder and the various ways it it plays out. And uh, one of the things we have to recognize is that God's wrath is different than our wrath. That when we're wrathful, it usually goes in that categorization that the Heidelberg Catechism describes as murder. That, That we are filled with malice, envy, slander, and that's why we are wrathful. God is wrathful for other reasons and out of different purposes. His wrath is against sin and wickedness. Almost always, our wrath is an expression of sin and wickedness. J.I. Packer puts it this way, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath is a necessary virtue for a holy and a loving God. Another theological implication that we must take as we look at all these things, and this is where we get to our personal application, the cup of God's wrath is due to us. The cup of God's wrath is due to us. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against Some unrighteousness? A a few aspects of unrighteousness? The really bad expressions of unrighteousness? No. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is against our sins our transgressions, our unrighteousness, our ungodliness, not just the sins of others. This is a danger we can get into as churchy folks. That when we think of sin and when we think of wrath, we think of, oh, that was what he had against those Israelites who were so rebellious, who actually disobeyed his commandments unlike us. That was his expression against the nations in the Old Testament and the unbelievers now. My sins aren't that bad. My sins don't deserve that. There's an article, I've mentioned it several times because it was the uh, part of the impetus and the motivation for this series by a guy named Peter Gurry. He says this, No one will ever be punished in hell for being unlike you in some superficial way. No, they will be punished for being so profoundly like you. 
That is what's really shocking about hell. It's shocking that we all deserve this fate, not one of us excluded. When Paul writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory God of God, this truth shatters all our pretentious self-comparisons. So we have the cup of God's wrath presented as his vehement, just, and holy, and terrible opposition to all evil, recognizing that it is a necessary virtue of God if we have a holy and loving God. We then must recognize that that wrath, that cup of wrath poured out is due to me and is due to you. Fortunately, we're not going to end there. Lastly, the point we want to make is that Christ takes the cup of God's wrath for us so that we might receive the cup of God's blessing. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start in the later part of the passage and then back up to an earlier part of that passage. First of all, let's look at the cup he takes on our behalf. Matthew 26. Let's begin in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. And he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The uh, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later. See the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thunder on a series on hell. How appropriate. The cup that Christ takes is the cup of God's wrath due to sinners. Christ was handed over to sinners that sinners might be handed over to God. Christ was betrayed by man that man might be reconciled to God. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath on earth that we might drink the cup of His blessing in His heavenly kingdom. Christ endured wrath that we might receive grace. 
the only man who did not deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath because he met God's righteous requirement, drank it to the dregs upon the cross for you and for me. What's the cup he gives? We've mentioned it a little bit already, but back up to Matthew 26, 26. By the way, that's an easy way to remember where the Lord's Supper appears in Matthew. Matthew 26, 26. Now they were eating. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it of all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink, day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's interesting, isn't, isn't it? That a cup of wine is used as the imagery of God's judgment as well as a sign of God's blessing in the New Testament. Christ took on the cup of wrath that we might receive. The cup that brings blessing. That reminds us of His forgiveness of sin. That looks forward to the day when we will drink and feast with Him in the heavenly realm. First Thessalonians 1.10 describes Jesus in this way. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I, I, I love that beautiful little phrase. Jesus, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a wrath coming for those who are not in Jesus Christ. There is a wrath coming for those who do not accept that He has drank the cup of wrath for us. But for those who rely upon Him, His work is sufficient. He drained the cup until it was empty. He took on the full wrath of God and He extends to you and me another cup. A cup that brings brings blessing. A cup that brings forgiveness. A cup that reminds us that there is a day coming when we will escape the wrath of God and instead be brought into His presence to feast. We had a a very last minute, I I contacted Joe and I said, look, I can't do this message without having communion. It's based on two cups, one that is taken from us and one that is given and offered to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I hope you have accepted the work of Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation, as your only means of being right with God, understanding He took what was due you and gave you what was earned by Him. Anytime you come to communion, I want you to remember those two cups. The cup that Christ has taken upon Himself and the cup of blessing that He has offered to you and to me.